Like all the controls on this remote unit, the volume is fully variable. Should the telephone ring or guests arrive, So I, I gave a talk uh, last year, and uh, that talk was about the paradigm shift that we've seen in the view of uh, septic AKI. And, uh, and this talk is uh, a continuation of that talk, because the last slide I had last year, I showed uh, a couple of uh, coming uh, studies. I said these uh, studies will be made in the future, and they will tell us something more about septic AKI. So now, one year later, we're actually in the future. And I'm going to tell you about what happened with those studies. Uh, if you want to look at uh, the lecture from last year, just go to Google and you, you write uh, sepsis-associated AKI and YouTube, and you'll find my talk with, uh, together with a talk from somebody called Arbolomo. <laughs> OK, so the paradigm shift that we've seen in the view of uh, sepsis-associated AKI is that we now talk about the microcirculation and not the macrocirculation. And we talk about the tubular cell adaptation instead of tubular necrosis. And we talk a lot, a lot about the damps, the pumps, and inflammation. So damps are damage or uh, damage-associated molecular patterns, and pumps are pathogen-associated molecular patterns. And the old view, the hypothesis historically, was that in sepsis and septic shock, the renal blood flow was decreased. This caused uh, renal ischemia and acute tubular necrosis. And what we did as clinicians was that we tried to improve cardiac output and tried to improve uh, renal blood flow by giving fluid or dopamine. Uh, now we know that that didn't work. The new hypothesis is that uh, the renal blood flow is unchanged or even increased. The tubular cells, they don't die. They adapt to survive sepsis. And sepsis-associated AKI is an inflammatory disease of the renal microcirculation. So with this new paradigm, what should we do? Well, we should have trials looking at maybe the microcirculation instead of macrocirculation. Can we affect the microcirculation with any drugs? If the cells don't die, can we have biomarkers that tell us of their adaptation instead of uh, looking for, for signs of cell death? And if it's an inflammatory disease, can we reverse the inflammation and cure our patients from sepsis-associated AKI? So starting with uh, the statement that the renal blood flow is unchanged or increased. Um, well, if we take that as a fact, then we don't have to put a lot of effort in doing trials at looking at giving more fluid uh, or giving uh, something that increases cardiac output. We can focus on trials that look at the microcirculation. The microcirculation in the kidney, can look something like this, a glomerulus with an afferent arteriole and an efferent arteriole. So if we could find a drug that could put a squeeze on the efferent arteriole, we could increase the pressure inside the glomerulus and increase the GFR, and our patients would pee more. We like that. So 
actually there are some drugs that do this. Vasopressin is a drug that has a uh, selective vasoconstrictive effect on the efferent arterial. And uh, the VANISH trial, which is uh, a couple of years old now, from 2016, uh, they looked at what happened if you give early vasopressin instead of early norepinephrine. And uh, actually, um, it didn't show any difference in mortality, but they showed a difference in uh, uh, renal replacement therapy free days. So that was actually a success for the hypothesis. There's another drug called celepressin, which is uh, a V1A selective uh, vasoconstrictor or agonist. And it's also a constrictor of the efferent arterial. And Jean-Louis has participated in uh, some of the trials. And uh, there's an ongoing trial called Sepsis Act. And uh, they will look at different dosing of celepressin. And, and one of the secondary outcomes is RRT free days, renal prism therapy free days. So that would be interesting to follow. And uh, then there's the afferent arterial. Uh, what would happen if we could uh, relax the afferent arterial? We, we would uh, let more blood come into the glomerulus, and that will also increase GFR. So that was one of the theories uh, behind uh, levosimendan, that levosimendan would cause a relaxation of the afferent arterial. And in sepsis, uh, there is a relative vasoconstriction of the afferent arterial because of tubular glomerular feedback. And in sepsis, there's a down-regulation of the sodium-potassium chloride co-transportation out of the urine. And so sodium chloride rises in tubuli and macular densa senses this and causes a relative vasoconstriction of the afferent arterial. So GFR decreases. So... Um, the hypothesis with uh, levosimendan was that it would reduce AKI and make the patients uh, produce more urine. Uh, the trial was called Leopard, and uh, it uh, was an RCT, and it didn't show any difference. Uh, the patients uh, didn't have less uh, time with renal replacement therapy, and they didn't produce more urine, and there was no difference, actually. So, some trials have been a bit successful and some have not. And then if we are also convinced that the renal blood flow is unchanged or increased um, and we should spend less time giving fluid to our patients when they don't produce urine. And maybe we should concern more with volume overload. We know that volume overload is associated with mortality. And we know that volume overload uh, also can worsen AKI. Um, so there was this uh, trial called uh, FFAKI, or forced fluid removal in patients with risk of AKI in Denmark. And uh, they set out to compare patients who received uh, standard care with fluids. Uh, and all the patients were in septic shock, by the way. And they compared with forced fluid removal to achieve a balanced uh, fluid, accumulative fluid balance. So, um, in effect, if uh, the patient didn't have a neutral fluid balance, they would give them prosomide or they would give them CRT. Unfortunately, this trial was terminated. Uh, they they run, ran the trial for two years, but they only included 21 patients, so it was terminated uh, last year. It would have been a nice trial to follow, but maybe they'll try again. 
And then there's the classic trial, a Scandinavian trial comparing restrictive fluid treatment with standard care in septic shock. And uh, the classic trial um, was the feasibility trial. They want to show is it possible to give less fluid to septic shock patients. They showed that. They also showed that uh, all the patient-centered outcomes were in favor of the restricted volume therapy. And also, very important, that the, the standard care group who received more fluids, they didn't produce more urine. So our notion that if the patient doesn't produce urine, we should give fluid is probably wrong. At least when we're looking at sepsis-associated API. And then there are all the CRRT trials, and Alexander already spoke about these yesterday. Uh, there's a Akiki trial, uh, where they had uh, about two-thirds uh, septic <coughs> patients, and they compared early and late CRT. And they uh, uh, couldn't show that it was beneficial to start early. And then there's the Elaine trial, Alexander's uh, trial, but that isn't really about sepsis-associated AKI, because most of the patients were uh, post-operative, and a lot of them were after cardiac surgery. So perhaps a lot of the AKI they saw was... Uh, related to the cardiac surgery or post-operative. So uh, it doesn't really apply in this lecture, but they showed uh, a small benefit of early CRT. And then there are two uh, trials, Ideal ICU, which uh, has included uh, 500 patients and they're doing uh, their analysis, will probably be published soon. And then there's START AKI, a Canadian study that is ongoing, and they are also comparing uh, early CRT to late or later CRT in septic shock patients. So that will be interesting to see. So concluding that, we don't really have the answer. Is it, uh, is it good to start early, or is it okay to start late? So um, right now, the Akiki trial says that it's okay to wait a bit longer. We don't have to have a preemptive CRT at least. Okay, so another statement is that the tubular cells don't die, they adapt to survive, and that we should look for biomarkers of that adaptation. And a very popular uh, biomarker of AKI is NGAL. Uh, the problem with NGAL, as uh, we see it, is that it comes in many forms. Uh, it comes uh, as a monomer, and com comes at a, as a heterodimer and a homodimer. And we have assays for the total NGAL, and we have an assay for the dimeric form. And the form that is probably released from uh, the renal cells is the monomeric form. So we don't really have an assay for that. Uh, so what we have done in the trials is look at the total NGAL. And... Uh, I'm doing uh, analysis now on NGAL, looking at N total NGAL in plasma. And what we're seeing, this is uh, not published yet, is that, uh, so the, this is a box plot with total NGAL on the y-axis and AKI severity, if you will, on the y-axis, on the x-axis. And the orange plots are patients with infections and the bluish uh, plots are patients with no infection. So you see NGAL, total NGAL is quite good as, at differentiating between if the patient has an infection or no infection. But there's really no signal differentiate, 
differentiating if the patient has AKI or the severity of AKI. And then we have endostatin. We thought endostatin was interesting because it's uh, it's a protein that's uh, a, it's a a protein that uh, falls out from collagen uh, in inflammation, and we think it plays a crucial part in development of AKI. And uh, we set out to see if uh, endostatin in plasma could predict if the patients were going to develop uh, AKI within 72 hours. And we also set out to, uh, um, to create a clinical prediction model. And uh, we created the model based on the patient's age and illness severity score uh, and early oliguria. And what did we see? Uh, well, in this study, um, on top, uh, you have uh, the rock area for endostatin. And you see the black line is the prediction, the clinical prediction model alone. And if we uh, multiply with endostatin, we get the blue line. And we see that endostatin and the prediction model uh, increase the prediction of AKI. And the area under the curve was about 0.84. So not super good, but OK. And uh, if we did the same thing with cystatin C, it didn't improve the clinical model. And if you look at MGAL, it didn't improve the clinical model. Now, uh, this wasn't a very strong finding. And uh, Max uh, set out to do the same study on uh, the FIN AKI data. And he's going to tell more about that uh, after the coffee break. And then they are the markers of, uh, of the so-called markers of cell cycle arrest. TIMP2 and IGF-BP7. Uh, <coughs> and the, there have been some um, trials uh, showing that they are quite decent at predicting AKI. And uh, so we, uh, our group, Max uh, and Johan Mortensen, they looked at our database and our um, urine samples from uh, ICU patients to see if, if uh, these uh, biomarkers could predict AKI in our patients. And it showed that they were quite poor. The uh, rock area was 0.40. <coughs> if uh, a good biomarker should have at least 0.90 to be a very good biomarker. So 0.40 is, uh, is very poor. And you can also see that in the same uh, uh, study, also urinary angle and urinary cystatin C support. So um, either there's uh, something very special with our patients or, as I think, uh, when you have patient, a very mixed ICU population, um, we don't get a very strong signal. It's, it's quite different if you look at patients that maybe come into the ER that don't have uh, um, very strong inflammation at that point. This is the same study. and. Uh, so the different plots are for the different biomarkers and uh, showing the admission diagnosis of uh, the patients. So you see with the TIMP2 and IGF-BP7 that uh, there was a quite strong signal for patients who were admitted due to GI uh, diseases and respiratory diseases. And MGAL, you see a very strong signal from the patients who were admitted because of sepsis. 
and cystatin C also respiratory and septic. So uh, what I think is that these markers are probably not very good markers of, uh, to predict AKI. They might be better markers of uh, showing these other uh, conditions or diseases. Okay, and also if we think that the tubular cells don't die, they adapt, and we should be able to revive them. And uh, there have been some tries to uh, reversing the effects of the damps and pamps. Um, one of those studies was uh, uh, made with Erythoran, a TL4 uh, antagonist, a toll-like receptor 4. The toll-like receptors, they're part of the innate immune system, and they recognize bacteria. Um, and the toll-like receptor 4 has a receptor that recognizes LPS, lipopolysaccharide, which is an endotoxin, part of the membrane of E. coli and other gram-negatives. So there was a big trial called the ACCESS trial, which compared uh, Eritoran to placebo in patients uh, uh, with septic shock. And these are the Kaplan-Meier curves of survival. And you see that survival after 28 days, no difference. Survival after one year, no difference. So this drug didn't improve survival, and it didn't, uh, there was no uh, difference in uh, anything else that was very important either. So that trial was um, not successful to show effect. And perhaps um, the reason they couldn't show effect was something that uh, Jean-Louis was talking about, that the, tr the trial was very large, and the population they looked at was very heterogeneous. For example, you see in the Eritorean group, about uh, one-fourth of the population had, had a gram-positive gram infection. And uh, as I said, the toll-like receptor 4 had a receptor that recognized gram-negative bacteria. So uh, it could be that uh, the effect is diluted by uh, patients being very heterogeneous. And maybe we need more personalized medicine. And then there's uh, another drug uh, or, um, called alkaline phosphatase and a, a trial called STOP-AKI. Uh, what they did is they uh, developed a recombinant alkaline phosphatase called RECAP. Um, alkaline phosphatase detoxifies LPS and it also degrades extracellular ATP. So ATP is supposed to be inside the cells and when it ex is exposed outside the cells, it's toxic. And uh, alkaline phosphatase uh, detoxifies this to adenosine, which is protective. So this should be really good. And in animal trials, it was very successful. So uh, the STOP AKI phase two trial uh, was the RCT of RECAP versus placebo within 24 hours of sepsis-associated AKI. And I have it, there hasn't been a release of the study, but there, was a, uh, there has been a press release from the company, and they're saying that uh, the primary outcome, uh, difference in area under the creatinine clearance curve within seven days, there was no difference. So there was no difference in uh, what we call AKI within one week, but there was less need for uh, renal replacement therapy within 28 days in the recap group, and there was a relative reduction in mortality in the recap group. So 
uh, they're labeling this as a success and they're moving on with trials. Finally, uh, I just have to mention this trial. Uh, Paul Merrick uh, did a trial, uh, hydrocodone, vitamin C, and thiamine for the treatment of severe sepsis and septic shock, published in CHESS, 2017. And this was a before and after trial, uh, retrospective. So what they did uh, in the hospital where they work, they took 47 patients from the period before they introduced this, <coughs> and then they compared outcome with 47 patients after they introduced uh, giving intravenous vitamin C, intravenous hydrocortisone, and intravenous thiamine. And, and the results were quite uh, off the charts, and it's, uh, it's been a lot of talk about this. So the hospital mortality dropped from 40% to 8.5%, and uh, the need for renal replacement therapy dropped from 33 to 10%. So this is uh, almost too good to be true. And uh, you know what they say, if it's too good to be true, probably it isn't true. So <laughs> we, we really don't know if, this, uh, if vitamin C or this cocktail works. What has to be done is, of course, uh, a randomized, randomized controlled trial, larger trials, and uh, if you look at clinicaltrials.gov, you can see there are two RCTs uh, registered to do just this. So that will be interesting to see in the future. Maybe I'll talk about that next year. So to conclude, uh, we've seen a paradigm shift in the view of sepsis-associated AKI. We're trying to focus on our trials on microcirculation and not the macrocirculation. And we think that the tubular cells, they adapt. There's no tubular cell necrosis and sepsis-associated AKI. And we're focusing on the dams and the pumps and the inflammation. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for a, a nice presentation. Is it the right button here? or uh... We can hear you. I can shout. <laughs> I enjoyed your presentation. Thank you. I have, a, I have about 10 comments, so I will, uh, I will try to be very short. But the, uh, the main comment will be a general one. When you say renal hemodynamics don't matter, it's only inflammatory, that sounds like the pendulum of medicine, because I don't see why the kidneys would be different from other organs, except that when we are in trouble, we selectively decrease our renal blood flow because that's what we learned from the entire evolution uh, that if we are in trouble, we need to preserve our blood volume and so we need to shut down our renal circulation. So the kidneys are more at risk than other organs when there is a reduction in blood volume. Now, the... Um, you are right to say that it's not only hemodynamic, but it's wrong to say that renal blood flow is adequate in uh, patients with sepsis. No, no, no. Read the, the latest issue or, or, or the one before the latest of clinical care medicine. There is a very nice study in humans, in humans showing that kidney blood flow is inadequate in those patients who will go on and develop. Uh, 
uh, I mean, those patients who are septic, basically, who are at risk of development of renal failure, what people call AKI today, we can no longer say renal failure. We need to say AKI. I continue to say renal failure. So, uh, it's forbidden, that's right. The gurus have said we cannot speak about renal failure. Uh, and uh, so, uh, we need, uh, of course, we need to keep the, uh, the renal hemodynamics. Um, and uh, the renal plateau may not be low, and I fully agree that uh, acute tubular necrosis we don't see, but we have known it for decades now. Uh, it's not necrosis of the kidneys, but underperfusion can be important. Uh, Belogo had a very famous study where he showed that in sheep it was not reduced. And we have the same experiences in our sheep with peritonitis. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's uh, so that's, I think, an important thing. You are right with respect to vasopressin and derivatives that could increase the tone of the efferent arterial of the kidney. Very important. As you say, we have done <coughs> quite a bit on this. I, I had confidence in cetopressin, but I didn't want to go into this last trial because I had problems with the protocol. And you were not in Brussels last March, two months ago, because we presented the data and they are negative. The study is interrupted. Another negative prospective randomized control trial. We should stop speaking about the negative trial. We should try to identify a positive prospective randomized control trial. But that's hard to find, very hard to find. So, um, yes, vasopressin could have a place early on in our sheep model. It can limit the data formation as well. It's very interesting. I skipped the slides from angiotensin too in my talk. I was afraid to go over time. But that's the same thing, of course. Angiotensin too can increase the tone of the efferent arterial. And there was a paper in clinical medicine two months ago showing that in patients from the large ATOS trial, which was published in the New England Journal, those patients who were on renal replacement therapy for renal failure appeared to have a greater survival when they were treated with angiotensin II. Maybe a lot of Maybe, 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 maybe. So uh, that's important because angiotensin II will become available in our country soon. That will cost 1,000 euros. <coughs> but they will be available in Europe soon. We spoke about it at the symposium as well. So uh, when, how will we use it, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, interesting. Levosimandan, once again, it was given to patients with septic shock, routinely. But of course it doesn't work, it created harm. Why do you want to give an inotropic agent routinely to all your patients? It did not make sense. So many of these trials are negative when they do not make any, any sense. And the trials on fluid, a bit more fluid, a bit less fluids, do not make sense either. We need to individualize it, SOSD. In which phase are you? Just randomizing patients for more or less fluid does not make sense if you want to be a good doctor at the bedside. You need to individualize your therapy. Did you see the latest study last month in the New England Journal of Medicine, again from Australia, again 3,000 patients? during surgery, randomized for more or less fluid. <sighs> well, hopefully, with less fluid, it was the outcome seemed to be a bit worse with more renal dysfunction. The kidneys like fluid. So, uh, but that's a ridiculous type of study. 
Have we not learned that during surgery we need to individualize our treatments and individualize fluid administration? And alkaline phosphatase, you were not in Brussels, the data were presented. Indeed, the, I, I can show you the data if you like. Um, I've been involved with that as well. The, um, the, the, the primary outcome was negative. There was no improvement in renal function. We published a paper in clinical care uh, several years ago from an initial study showing that it may have a protective effect on the kidney. And in the subsequent trial, there was nothing really on the kidney, but there was a reduction in mortality. Ah, maybe it was a positive trial with respect to mortality. But the numbers are small, and it's difficult to interpret, so we can't say very much about it. So unfortunately, alkaline phosphatase uh, is, uh, is not around at the, at the time being. I have some other comments, but we'll have some discussion later, I think. So I enjoyed your presentation, but it, it generated some uh, so I'm in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.